As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. We are in the midst of a little mini-series that we're doing leading into the school year this year, and this is our third episode with Ian, Kyle, and Martin talking about literary topics. Just to shake it up a little bit, do a couple episodes in a row on literature, and then we'll get back to some of our more pedagogical topics later this fall. But for today, we're talking about British literature. The majority of the Memorial Press literature curriculum is British literature, and so I thought it would be fun to talk to you guys about your experiences with British literature and the things that we're equipping students to read and engage with later on. But before we get there, Martin, it's been a little bit since we've had a chance to talk. I know you've been traveling and quite busy, but have you been reading anything interesting lately? Well, I just uh, reread. Uh, my, my wife had not read it before, but I, I, I had read it uh, maybe several years ago. And that was Ivanhoe, mm-hmm. uh, since we're speaking of British literature, uh, by Sir Walter Scott. And she, you know, we were listening to it and she didn't say anything. And, and we went on a trip to about an eight hour car trip there and back. And uh, it finished it up close to home. And, uh, and so just several hours later, after we got home, we, you know, you, you, you unpack and do all this stuff. And we're sitting on the couch and she said, I really liked that novel. I said, Ivan, she said, yeah, I, I really liked that. And it, it was, I, cause I, I, she wasn't reacting to it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah Ivanhoe is, uh, and, 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 and Walter Scott. I mean, mm-hmm. I think when we talk about British literature, Scott has to play a role in this. He was basically the inventor of the historical mm-hmm. novel. Uh, and, uh, and, became very famous for doing it. Sure. Uh, wrote under a pseudonym and uh, apparently the King of England uh, said, I want to have dinner with the author of Waverley, which was the first of his historical novels, all the ones after that are just referred to as the Waverley novels. And eventually did have dinner <laughs> with well, the King uh, <laughs> because of this, because he is, I think the great champion of Christendom. Hmm. Uh, all his books are about, are about, really Western civilization and what is so glorious about it. And of course, uh, his other book that, uh, that we publish at Memoria Press, um, the talisman, the talisman, thank you. The talisman, uh, is almost directly about that, I think. Um, and, and so I, I think he's an important, very important British writer. Uh, mm, that's a good, a good recommendation. Stop whatever you're doing right now. <laughs> Sell your shirt and buy a copy of Ivanhoe. Yeah. <laughs> Kyle, what have you been reading lately? Um, I've been reading, so I have fallen in love with a, I'll, I'll get to what I'm reading, a, a uh, painting by Rembrandt um, uh, is Lucretia. And he has two, it's the 1666 version of Lucretia. And so because of my love of that painting, this is a non-academic connection, I've been reading Shakespeare's uh, narrative poem on the rape of Lucretia. Mm. Which is very, very good. I, I've I had this is the first uh, narrative poem by Shakespeare. I've read some of his sonnets. Um, this is the first narrative poem by Shakespeare I've read. Um, it's very good. I think it's in the first stanza. Uh, he calls the uh, he calls lust the invisible fire, which I think is it's a beautiful line, profound line. So I've been enjoying that. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, how many, do you have a sense of how many narrative poems Shakespeare wrote? I mean, I, I've heard of that. Yeah. Well, that's the one that gets thrown all, around a lot, but yeah, definitely not as familiar with his narrative poems. It seems like most survey courses hit the sonnets and the plays, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at least a little bit, but not the narrative poems. It's not many, I, and I know less about this because nobody talks about it, right. um, but he's got, uh, what's the, uh, is it the turtle and the, the phoenix and the turtle, I think? Hmm. Um, that gets talked about a little bit. And then there's uh, a third one that's escaping me. But and what's yeah. like the length of The Rape of Lucrece? Is this like a couple of pages or are we no, talking like 20, it's 30 long. pages? Yeah. 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 20, 30 pages. Mm-hmm. Huh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Ian, what about you? So I haven't been able to do a lot of fun reading my semester starting back up with a, with a project that I'm doing in, in seminary. And so I've been reading some um, UCBS's ecclesiastical history and actually uh, reading through his sort of spiritual father, Pamph- Pamphilus, Pamphilus, I don't know what typically say, um, but his defense of origin. And so it's been an interesting, uh, interesting couple weeks in those guys. Yeah, but not British literature. They're not British literature at all. <laughs> nice. I, well, I recently picked up Stephen Fry's Troy. Have you guys heard of oh, Stephen yeah, Fry? Seen, mm-hmm. He he retells mm-hmm. myths um, and his Troy, it's it's very good. I'm really enjoying it, but I also kind of am obsessed with some of those stories. And, um, but I, I think his retellings are really good. So I would definitely recommend Stephen Fry's Troy. I started, it's the third in a trilogy, but I started with the third and then going back to the beginning. Yeah, does he do the, the Norse myths too, I believe? He may, may I, have. I, the, yeah. the Mythos trilogy is like Greek gods, Greek heroes, and then oh, Troy. Oh, maybe the, maybe the Greeks. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So very good. So let me ask you guys this to kind of start our conversation. Memoria Press's literature program is made up of largely British literature. There are some American titles, and that was a very specific choice um, to root our literature program in text that goes back farther and to give it more breadth. Um, Martin, would you speak a little bit to defending that choice um, for us and why we don't spend most of our time largely reading American literature memorial press well i think we're trying to explore our roots our cultural roots and we you know our culture is basically british that's where where our culture comes from most directly and so i i think uh i think we're just we're trying to get to the sources uh ad fontes here and so britain although that's not all the way back i mean obviously we're studying rome and sure. greece and the further the roots further back but i think uh I think, you know, uh, Britain is where English civilization was developed out of the general Western civilization and American civilization came out of, came out of British civilization. Yeah. And Kyle, in your experience, you have a love for American literature, mm-hmm. but what are the benefits that you have found in teaching certain British texts? I know you've taught Sir yeah. Gawain in the Green Knight. I'm going to go with Gawain just right out the gate. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can go with a different pronunciation or preferred, yeah. but you also teach Shakespeare. Um, you say that King Lear is the great American play. You know, so <laughs> yes, what, have do, you yeah. fa- what benefits have you found from, <laughs> from reading the Brits? Yeah. And you teach English? Is that what you teach? Yeah. Yeah. Not geography. <laughs> um, well, two things. So I just like to second what you're saying about uh, Martin, about culture. Um, I was on, was this two summers ago? I got called in for jury duty and they had us watch a little video, uh, you know, just to prepare us for whatever, you know. Um, and the first thing the video talked about was the Magna Carta as sort of like the root of, you know, leading to our, uh, our jury system and our, our, um, 
you know, being judged by a jury of your peers. And I thought that was really cool. I thought that was neat that like still, you know, in this very modern context, um, there's still, you know, credit where credit is due and there's still an idea that, that these ideas come from somewhere Mm -hmm. and it's worth knowing. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting thing because if we just relied on the sort of Greek Roman, at least in the law, um, you know, because America's legal system is based uh, both on Rome and on the Anglo-Saxon tradition mm, right. mm. Uh, of the jury system, which, you know, Rome, it's it's the written law and England brings in the case law and you put those two things together and you get American law. So, um, so England, you know, you, you, you get everything uh, with the English, whereas if you were just to go off in another direction, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really get everything that's you see in it. America, not just in the legal system, but in other things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and another thing I would add to that too is I do love American literature, but if I were to point out what I, what I think is maybe a primary flaw of American literature, it's, it's going to be the same flaw that a young man has when he is trying to prove that he's different from his father hmm. um, and doing something that, you know, doesn't necessarily need to be done or maybe should not be done in order to, to be different um, I think that might be America, American literature's flaw in many cases. And so I think it's worthwhile looking at, uh, in the analogy, the, the father figure in that analogy, um, and appreciating that, I mean, I, I was just thinking about uh, earlier, that, that, I mean, the English, sounds obvious to say, but the English have mastered the English language. You know, Americans have not mastered the English language. It's, it's the English in their, in their tradition. It's just... A beautiful writing and and beautiful. I mean, yeah, you mentioned Shakespeare. Um, just the, the turns of phrase and and the the way he conveys meaning with words, it's very mature, uh, in the sense of a, a mastery over over the language, compared to you know American letters, which can often be much more adolescent. I think. It, and uh, just listening to Kyle makes me think uh, the, uh, a thought that I have not thought before, and that is that. America seems to produce a lot more stylists mm. than the mm. British do. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, it's probably because of just what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, that, that they, they've mastered the language at a high level, whereas we're still sort of... Uh, Figuring that out. Yeah, <laughs> amateurs at it. Yeah. And so we, yeah. we tend to develop a, a style. That's what distinguishes us rather than the, just the pure uh, uh, facility with the language. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Ian? Same question. What are, as you have kind of reflected on the sequence and the scope at Memorial Press, what are the benefits of going deep and going back to the British tradition in literature? Yeah, I think that there is, and something I want to just continue to talk about maybe is sort of that uh, relationship between the British tradition and everything that came before. It's so much more organic and clear in Britain. I mean, there's a whole ocean that divides us from 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 the places where Western civilization was born. And that ocean makes a major difference. I mean, when you get to the US, our stories are different. You know, our our stories may have I I've been reading through Hamlet as well. I should have mentioned that because of Shakespeare. But, you know, in Hamlet there's a ghost at the very beginning. And when I read British literature, I have a sense that the supernatural and the natural seem to mm-hmm. coexist in a way that in American literature it doesn't. In American literature, it's often a very clear division between what's supernatural and what's not. But then in English, you've got this sometimes this old paganism that comes from the the rocks of the ground. You know, yeah, like there's a yeah. there, there's there's a connection to the old things 
in in British literature that we don't necessarily have. And I think that can that connection to the old things can be both traditions from the Greeks and the Romans, but also uh, the Druids, the Celts, these older peoples that are there. So you're just getting a much more fascinating, in my opinion, view of the world. And as someone who goes to seminary, I like to see some of that spirituality come to play mm. in, in works. It reminds me of in T.H. White's retelling of the Arthurian legends, the Celts yeah. are called the old ones. Yeah. You know, and they yeah. are separated from the Normans. And, That's right. And it's the old ones. Yeah. To, to, just to dovetail with that, because this is something I've always been fascinated by, that, that there's there's a difference in the art between the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. Mm. Um, just the characteristic of characteristics of those oceans, I think shapes something. Uh, and this isn't quite exactly to your point, but I think it dovetails with your point um, that there's something about, about there's those Northern stories that mm-hmm. kind of feel their age, you know, yeah. that, that like the, it, they feel cold to yeah, me often. That's right. English literature often feels cold. Yeah. Um, in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think an interesting way to pursue this topic would actually be to talk about the various periods of British literature from a very like thousand foot view mm-hmm. and ask you guys about your experiences with these periods, what books within them you would recommend to people just so that we can hopefully kind of inspire listeners towards the things we're equipping their students to read and then also things that they should go back and read if they haven't. So Kyle, starting with the very earliest period there's mm-hmm. this break somewhere between old english and middle english most people are going to attribute that to chaucer where the english starts to become understandable but there are a few books that we kind of hold up written in actual old english as worth yeah. reading and contemplating today one of those would be beowulf um and then you have you know the wanderers a poem that gets spread mm-hmm. that i believe we have in our in our first um poetry book um, what are some of the books from that period in Old English that are worth reading? Have you read Beowulf? Do you recommend it to people? Yeah, I have read Beowulf. I do recommend it to people. Um, if you know me, one of my favorite novels is Wuthering Heights. Yeah. And if you've read Beowulf, it, I mean, there's there are perfect parallels really? between between those two novels. Draw that uh, out for the, me. The, I've never thought that before in my life. The prowling beast on the, you know, uh, uh, in the, on the sort of, the, if you imagine, you know, a, a fire at the center of things and people gathered around the warmth of that fire and then you have the prowling beast. And it's the wedding feast in, uh, in the Gospels and Scripture, um, you know, the outer darkness. That's, I mean, that's Beowulf. That's Grendel. He exists in that outer darkness and specifically the, the poem identifies what he's upset about is they are warm and merry and together and he's not, he's cut out of it. Um, and this is what makes him, you know, the monster, uh, that Beowulf then, then wrestles quite literally wrestles. Um, so yeah, uh, that, that, that's a major theme in, in Wuthering Heights. I think it's a major theme in, in humanity. And again, it's, it, it, you know, it's cold, right? There's the, there's the, there's the warmth of the fire, which is necessary because the, the world is a cold place. Um, and you know, Grendel's on the outside of that boundary. Yeah. So let me push back. Go for it. Yeah. In Beowulf, King Beowulf himself is a ridiculous character. (laughs) You know, he swims under, underwater Mm -hmm. for, you know, what seems like eternity with his armor on, with his armor (laughs) on. Like it's what, what do you think? How would you push back on the student? Who's like, I can't, suspend my disbelief to this level. This is absurd. These students who are raised on fantasy books would be that way, you think? <laughs> mm-hmm, no. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, the students who can, who can pause a Marvel movie at any moment and, <laughs> right. and, and try not to see a grown adult in a plastic, you know, costume. Um, no, yeah. So that's a fair point, perhaps. Beowulf is, is sort of the, the, what, a hyperbole of a, of a hero um, until the very end, which I guess, you know, the students will have to suspend their disbelief that long. But at the very end, uh, his battle with the dragon, I think, is very human and very real. And he becomes. Um, I think it's hinted at the beginning uh, in Beowulf. Uh, and, and you know, when you get to that point at the end of the text, he becomes very, uh, very much a character who is mortal and really is going to die and, and needs to grapple with that fact, which I think the poem has been grappling with all along. Yeah, well, why are you focusing on, on Beowulf? The whole thing is sort of fantastic. True. Uh, true. True. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know why he's, he's any more fantastic than anything else in the book. Yeah, yeah, I think maybe it's just because I'm conditioned by later, you know, Byronic heroes and such to, to want to relate to the protagonist in some way. And this, mm. this character is so other. He's not one I, you can relate to very well. I wonder if it's just a sense of fun, you know, because there's, there's Grendel's mother too, where there are these crazy monsters. She lives somehow mm. under a lake in a hall where there's air in the hall because Beowulf can breathe. You know, it's all the, it's, it's, it's wild stuff. But she's upset when Grendel's killed because she's Grendel's mother. Yeah. And that, that I think is perfectly relatable, perfectly understandable. Yeah. So let's zoom out a little bit, not just old English language text, but what uh, books, poems, texts from the kind of old English, middle English period, you know, would you guys say these are definitely ones that you should read or, or ones that you've had a good experience with? I don't, I don't, these, these people, Kyle's an English teacher. He knows periods. I don't, I just read books. Yeah, honestly, I pretend to, yeah, yes. yeah. I'm with Martin on this. So, <laughs> so have you guys read well, what Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? Yes. Yeah. Thoughts on whether it's, it's required reading or is that one that you can, or should you read the Pearl or Sir Orfeo instead? It is, it is one of the, the, maybe the most perfect poem. One of the most perfect poems ever written. Okay. Defend yourself. It's, it's complete. <laughs> It's perfectly whole. It starts. It starts with it with an object that is that is uh, you know a mountain in sight that's worth climbing, and then it climbs it fully and celebrates at the top. It's it's this perfect Christmas poem. Yeah, and I I taught the pearl uh, pearl mm-hmm. at one point, mm-hmm. and and I you know the thing that struck me <laughs> as, as a teacher teaching some of that material is I thought to myself, you know, if if, uh, if, I, if I'm an English teacher in a public school, uh, in a secular institution, and, and, and I want to uh, get my Christianity in there some way, I'm just going to mm. teach those books because they're so yeah, right. explicitly Christian, and yet they're classics. So yeah. I wouldn't think anyone would come and you know, shut you down for teaching them. But uh, Pearl is certainly that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful conception. Just, it's been a while since I read Pearl, um, but if I'm remembering correctly, you know the opening is he's looking he's looking in the, in the grass for this pearl that he's lost that's fallen down into the grass, and the analogy there is his his daughter who has died mm-hmm. and who's buried you know mm-hmm. under the grass, um, and he's searching for her and cannot find her his 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 precious pearl. Mm-hmm. That's that's a beautiful thought. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I feel like the, the the two titles in that kind of range, the ones that we spend the most time with and the ones that get mentioned the most are Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and Beowulf. Um, yeah. 
and and Kyle has is you know given done his best English professor impersonation. <laughs> but if you zoom forward, then you get into the Renaissance, and in the Renaissance you have authors like Sir Philip Sidney, um, John Milton, um, and many others. Um, trying to think of other well Shakespeare of course comes at this point. Uh, Christopher Marlowe. Um, is there anything in that period that you guys think is worth diving into? What are the things that are worth kind of spending time with even today, all these years later? Can, I'm, I'm sorry. Can I posture as an English professor for Absolutely. just a few more seconds? And then we can move on to, to and there <laughs> might be a segue here to, to uh, Paradise Lost. One more comment about Gowan to, sure. an, to answer your question. Um, I mentioned the cold. Yes. It, it is It is the poem defining how, how Christianity offers a, a uh, life in the midst of winter, you know, the green in the midst of winter's ice and cold and, and death, which it's, it's the perfect Christian poem in the sense of like the coming of Christ in a dead world, um, bringing, bringing life where it shouldn't be and marveling at the life that's there where it shouldn't be. Yeah. That's my defensive of Gowan. Yeah. It's pretty nice. Yeah. <clears throat> pretty good. Yeah, Absolutely. But on to the Renaissance, I, you know. Yeah, other authors, John John Dunn, people love. George mm, Herbert, mm-hmm. you have some of the great Greek, uh, Christian metaphysicians. Um, Martin, you've often been a defender of Shakespeare and his necessity for people's lives. At one point you told me you read sometimes his words as, his plays as writing fuel, you know, so that you can like think about how to write turns of phrase. Uh, why would you encourage someone to spend some time with Shakespeare? Well, um, you know, we're, we're emphasizing basically the Western canon. And I know <laughs> Harold Bloom wrote a book called The Western Canon. Uh, Harold Bloom, the, the literary, great literary critic who just died two, two, three years ago. And he said, I, I just remember that one remark he's made, Shakespeare is the Western canon. <laughs> now he goes on from there uh, and includes other people. But, but there, is, there is something about Shakespeare that is, number one, utterly universal. Um, you know, people, people have made the remark that, you know, we don't really know who Shakespeare is. Hmm. But what, what, Shakespeare, what, what did Shakespeare think? Well, we have no clue. Because all we have is his characters and his stories. And we can draw some very universal conclusions from that. But, you know, most, most writers are associated with some, some particular point of view, some particular, but, but, Shakespeare's point of view is universal. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I, and I think so in a way that, that very, very few other writers are. And he has so utterly mastered the English language in a way that, that we can only, uh, you know, poorly approximate any writer today can, you know, it's, 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 nobody can really come, come come up to his standard. I think he's just the standard that we're all trying to approximate. And, uh, I mean, not only his style and his ideas and the, the, the wedding together of what he says and how he says it in a way that is utterly unique. And he says, he says some things that I don't think you could say any other way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What other writers do that? I I don't know. Yeah, I, it reminds me of Emerson's quote, which I think is making the same point, but kind of in an opposite way. Where he said, "In when asked, you know, 
we don't know anything about Shakespeare. You know, what can we say about him? Emerson said, he's actually the one man we know better than all other men because everything he, he says is so true. He put all of himself in every play and every character. And so, you know, his point just being all of those characters are so lifelike and real and resonate with the truth that it must have come with some from someone who understood all that themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I thought that was interesting. You see the refractions of of whatever he thought right in his characters, but to get back to the the light that was refracted in the beginning is kind of hard. <laughs> yeah. I, I think too we think of creating yeah like an author writing. We we think of that as as uh, putting words to a certain meaning. So there's, so there's something that's meaningful, and an author wants to convey that meaning. Um, I think when you look at Shakespeare, though, you you can also consider another element of creation, which is making things meaningful, hmm. which, I mean, Shakespeare's coined more phrases and more words, um, you know, so I think in one sense there, he, he finds he, he is filling words with meaning, right? right? Um, but then also, I mean, you mentioned Shakespeare's stories, which that are not his, right. you know, mm-hmm. Julius Caesar is not They're Shakespeare's story, story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. but he, he tells that story in such a way that he shows you the meaning of it right. or he fills it with a meaning, um, that isn't, uh, necessarily there, I guess I should say from our perspective, you yeah. know, from God's perspective, it's there, but from our perspective, it's not necessarily there until Shakespeare tells it. So another way he does that is with the intense specificity with which he understood certain disciplines and used in that his vocabulary is massive because he seemed to know everything. And so a great example of this is Romeo and Juliet, where he appears to know everything there is to know about fencing and the words, there's a manual of fencing that people have identified as a source for Romeo and Juliet because he uses all of the words in that manual. And he mm-hmm. apparently was an expert mm-hmm. in that, but he also uses astrological terms in the same way and nautical terms in the same way. So it seemed like he knew everything. And that I think um, imbuing meaning into something like fencing through the way that metaphor operates in the play is one of his great skills. He's also, you have to tell me your impression of Hamlet um, because my impression of Hamlet is, is it still eludes me. I mean, I, I, I read Hamlet and I still, I know that I'm not seeing everything that he's doing. And that, that impresses me. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking about Hamlet this entire time because I think one of the things that, that Shakespeare's so good at is he's consciously a part, like we've talked about a tradition Hmm. and he's bringing in these stories that are classical stories and he's reshaping them. And from my understanding, Hamlet is a retelling of an actual like Norse or Viking Viking story, but I think it also consciously draws on things like the Oresteian trilogy. I mean, you, you've got these cycles of violence that the Greeks and Aeschylus are dealing with. Like, how do you break a site? How somebody kills your, your father, you, you have to go then kill them. What if it's your mother? You know, that's awful. Well, Hamlet's doing the very same thing. You know, his uncle kills his father and then marries his mother. And so he's dealing with that. And so he's, so, so, so I see some of that in there. And I, I think one of the benefits of reading Shakespeare then is then being brought into a larger tradition. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be an expert in that tradition. You can allow the story to 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 work on you. And as you get older and you read more, then you get to see more of what Shakespeare's doing. But at the same time, I left I left Hamlet going, okay, everybody's dead. You know, like what, you know, what's <laughs> yeah. what do I do with that? You yeah. know, and mm-hmm. I think that that the fact that we're still talking about it, and I think I read in the Afterwards, someone was writing a little, a modern view on Shakespeare or on Hamlet. And, you know, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit at that, at that 
title, but but he says, you know, besides the Bible, Hamlet's had more commentaries written on it than anything else. And I think that's mm. just testament to what Shakespeare has done in that yeah. story, but also in all of his stories. And, and that's the play that, that I think best underscores what Harold Bloom's main point, really, I think about Shakespeare was the subtitle to his book, Shakespeare, is The Invention of the Human. Mm. Yes. Uh, mm. He... It, because it's it's I don't I don't know if there is a work, there may be, but it's, I, but there can't be many, a work before Hamlet, where you see the modern personality, which mm-hmm. is self-reflexive. You know, Hamlet talks to himself. Where, where does that happen yeah. b- before? And we're that's we're all about ourselves mm-hmm. now. I mean that 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 seeing ourselves as a self. And that, that, that self-reflexiveness is just doesn't seem to be there. But in Hamlet, it's all over the place. It's just right. boom, you know, fully formed yeah. from the, you know, fully sprung from the head of Zeus right there in, in the play. And, uh, and so I, he's also important just because of that. I mean, yeah. He's a great observer right. of human, mm. of everything human. Yeah. And, it, in, and it, it, it manifests itself in so many ways in his plays. Yeah. So the Renaissance is obviously just a huge period of time, but Shakespeare rises to the surface along with John Milton as two of the more important, probably John Bunyan uh, is a very mm-hmm. important figure to mention there, not necessarily because of his literary skill or ability, but because of the resonance that his text had with a Protestant audience at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but jumping forward to maybe the smallest, most contained period of British literature would be the next one people I would identify would usually be the Romantic period of starting towards the end of the 17th century and going into the 1800s. Um, sorry, the 18th century and then going into the 1800s. Um, do you guys have any love for the romantics? This would be Wordsworth, Keats, Shelley, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, um, and William Blake. Is, uh, any of their poems or writings? I'm just ever? not that, you know, honestly, I haven't read that much mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'd like to know. Mm-hmm. Tell me. Have you, have you guys ever read Frankenstein? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think of it? So, well, just, I could respond in general to the, to the romantics. I, I do love the romantics. Um, and going back to what I said about American literature and that adolescent that is all excited that they've mm. discovered something new, I get a little bit of that same feeling from, uh, you know, someone like Wordsworth or, or, um, or Keats. Uh, Keats is, is like the moody teenager. And he, I mean, he, he died young. He was close to a teenager, but... Um, Keats is sort of the moody teenager who like, you know, sees that, uh, you know, the world is broken and, you know, don't, don't you see it's like, it's beautiful. It's breathtaking, but, but it's inaccessible, <laughs> you know? Um, and I, 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 so there, there is, if I can just qualify what I said about that adolescence, like I do love that, that, that youth, you know, that struggling youth. Um, I think there's something to that because I think there's an answer there. I think there's an answer to the, to those questions that are that are brought up. Um, so when Keats looks at the world and despairs, I think there's a real answer for him and his despairs. Well put. I'll, I'll yeah. say that he's yeah. a beautiful writer. I think that that despair probably is most accessed by people today in Frankenstein. Mm. Martin thoughts on Frankenstein. Well, I, I, I think it's, you know, it's one of those books. I think I've read it once, not too long ago. And I think it, I think it's one of those books. I mean, you see certain things in a book when you read it the first time and, and, and one of the things you might see 
and it's the case with Frankenstein, is that there's more to be seen than mm. you're seeing. Sure. Uh, and I think I would have to read it two or three more times to really understand it better. But I, I, I do think it's this great modern parable of, uh, you know, what can happen when we toy with, uh, with, with humanity. Mm. Um, I mean, all of, I, I, I've thought of it many times when, when, you know, you get into these debates about cloning and, mm. um, and this sort of thing where we're talking about a human being here mm. and, you know, he, cause he creates this human, but it's a mon, he's also a monster and you've, you've, you've created somebody in a monster's body and he doesn't seem to feel, want to feel responsible for it. And, uh, and, and so I think that's a, it's a, it's a parable for our times. Yeah. Mm. And that's just, that's just really, uh, that's a very apparent thing on the surface of sure, the, sure. Mm-hmm. other things in it. Yeah. I agree with you. Although, um, I'm going to just go ahead and take my shots at Frankenstein. Here is, since this is our podcast, we can do what we want. Um, I agree that the symbolism is helpful and compelling. And the question of should and not could is a question that should be asked of technologies. However, the Frankenstein's monster learns how to speak through looking at a hole, through a hole at a family over the course of three yeah, weeks. Uh, right. Yeah. And yeah. that's a, mm-hmm. yeah, there's, there's that's things that are not, yeah. Well, and yes, I mean, and I think if you, if you look at the kind of the, development of literature you 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 have a you're talking about beowulf and there's an even more severe problem in that regard uh and you get you 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 find that in the older the literature is and until we get to this more kind of realism that we are used to now mm. two other um pieces from the romantic period that i i have really resonated with and i'm interested to hear if you guys have read samuel taylor coleridge um is one of mm. the romantics and he became a christian later in his life one of the only significant writers in that, in that period. Was it Wordsworth. Wordsworth did as well. Yes. Interesting. Um, Coleridge wrote two poems, Kubla Khan, which is mm. the less famous one. It's very interesting. And then a poem called The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Have you guys mm. read The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? I have. I have. I've taught it. Or I teach it. You teach Currently. it? Yes. Yeah. So um, David Wright, who wrote a lot of our upper school literature, says that Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is the meeting point of classical and modern literature. It is the it is mm. the direct crux. Do you agree with that take? Oh, I don't know. I'd have to think more about that take, and I have to hear, I'd have to hear more of the uh, the arguments behind it. Um, I do love the poem though, and I do think it is. Oh, uh, how do I put it? It it has a it has a quality of um, it's not trying to explain itself. It is it is doing what it's doing, and it seems very certain in what it's doing. Um, you know, the, the original crime, his, you know, the Mariner's shooting of the albatross is just stated. There it is. Uh, and you're, you're sort of left to, to, you know, it means something, but what does this mean? Um, but I see in that poem more of this, um, I, I can't get away from the inside outside, you know, the, the, the outsider, uh, quality. Um, but just more of that question of, of, uh, the, Crime. I just kind of go back to Frankenstein. The, the you know the toying with things and the crime, and then that that question of how do we how do we get back? How do we return? Um, I don't know that that speaks to the classical. Yeah, thing, I, I think maybe what he's referring to, and it would be interesting to talk to him, is you have that wonderer figure who's telling mm-hmm. the story, 
Um, and so that kind of speaks to this ancient tradition, Homerian tradition of people verbally telling right. these poems, but then you have this modern um, perspective of a person who is culpable for their sin and commits this great sin and is paying for that sin. It's a consciousness of human guilt that the romantics are, are trying to get away from by fleeing to away from civilization and creating their own mm-hmm. utopias and all these things. Yeah. Trying to be young again. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the romantic period is, is maybe the shortest, but I, I think it's, it's an interesting period for sure. Um, another great poem from this period that's in our curriculum is uh, Ozymandias. I'm sure you guys mm-hmm. read that one. There's a great YouTube clip of Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad reading the poem Ozymandias. Mm. I'd recommend you YouTube it. I feel like that poem doesn't have to be in its literary period to be good. It's, right. you know, it, it's just a good poem. It's a, right. it's a great thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So we can move forward and I can just clear, clear a lane for Ian and Martin to talk about. If we combine, you know, neoclassical and Victorian literature, then, you know, the, the main person we have to talk about is Charles Dickens. Right. <laughs> and maybe also Jane Austen, but, Ian, yeah. you love Charles Dickens. I do love Charles Dickens. Martin, I know you do too. I, I do. Yeah. What do you love about Charles Dickens? Oh, too too many things to count. I mean, you know, this if we're just shooting the breeze, what I love about Charles Dickens is A, I think he's often very funny. You know, he's 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 very funny. I think he he does teach you how to read. We mentioned that on a mm-hmm. recent podcast where, you know, he's he's often very clear with his symbolism, sometimes on, you know, on the nose with it, but at the same time, there's a satisfaction in and seeing what he's saying. But I think one of the things that I love the most is that he, he really humanizes characters. Now you may argue with that. Well, a lot of these characters are caricatures and of course they are, you know, Mr. Macabre and David Copperfield is just this hopelessly happy person, even though he can't do anything right, but there's something beautiful about that. And the way Dickens actually makes a believable story out of what happens to him in the long run is great. And then even in David Copperfield, I think the way he dignifies those who for so long have not had dignity. I mean, I think of Mr. Dick in David Copperfield, who is very clearly um, a person with special needs and yet he becomes instrumental to the story. Mm. In more ways, and it's not just a kind of, you know, let's give him a subplot and make it work. He's actually instrumental to the story. And so Dickens, I, I find with him just so much to love about life. I love his settings, his scenes. When when I'm in London with Dickens, I like I can smell it and I can feel it mm. and I can feel the oppression and the weight of it and also the glory of it at times. I mean, when he's inside a building, you're sitting in a chair with him. You know, and I think that's one of his great, great strengths. Your favorite Dickens novel? I don't know because I love A Tale of Two Cities and it's not my favorite novel by any means, but I love it. And I love the characters. I mean, Sidney Carton is one of my favorite characters. I think we can't get away from him. And, um, but I love David Copperfield. I love the way you get this buildings Roman of the story of this, this, this character you get from childhood all the way up and, he presents you with a life that has its tragedies, but it's overarching beauty. And I think that's as a Christian, something that I want to see in literature. I want to see even how a tragedy can be made beautiful, how a sacrifice, mm-hmm. a self-sacrifice mm-hmm. has more meaning than just he's dead. Yeah. yeah. You know, see that th- this is interesting to me because, because as I listen to you, it sounds like you're describing a very mature 
literary master, right? That yeah. that it, like the caricatures in particular. I think it's those adolescent stories that everything has to be nuanced and everything has to That's be right. like there are no real heroes. So you have to understand you know, the darker side. <laughs> and yes. and Dickens is Can able just to just index finger in my <laughs> mouth. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. It's good. Makes I mean, good Dickens idea. is able just with a good mature sense of humor just cut straight through that. That's right. And give you a beautiful character. Yeah. yeah. Martin, what do you love about Charles Dickens? Everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am. Um, there's this, uh, and I've noticed this from reading Chesterton. The, Chesterton was considered one of the great critics of Dickens, wrote a very, very good book about Dickens. And I realized it's the same sense of humor. Uh, hmm. There is this playfulness at the, at the bottom of Dickens. There's, there's this, and in, in, Interesting. I, I wonder if anyone's done anything on this. You see this even in this. There is a, it's a uniquely English sense of humor, a uniquely English joy at the heart of things. And you see mm. it in Ivanhoe, uh, in the scene with, where Athelstan comes back seemingly from the dead, uh, Friar Tuck, uh, Merry England, you know, Robin and his mm. merry men. Mm. There's this playfulness there. And it's all over Dickens. You know, mm-hmm. there's a serious, it doesn't, it doesn't detract from the seriousness of what's going right. on. Uh, but there is this joy and it's, it's there's both these things at, at work in his books. And, and I also like the way he's like Tolstoy in the sense that he lets his characters make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, there's, there's people on their way to heaven and there's people on their way to hell and he lets them go. You know, Tolstoy wants to save them so more than Dickens does, I think. But but they they choose their own path because they're real. You yeah. know uh, that that's that's what a good author is able to do is to make characters that are real and that do make their own decisions. Right. And he's he does that. Yeah. Can, can I ask uh, play a devil's advocate and ask you a question? As long about, as you understand uh, that you're playing the devil's advocate. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll take the other side. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well played. Um, so Mary England, in what way, can you explain in what way that's not irony? Because we've, we've talked about, um, you've, you've uh, given your opinion. Because about, irony is destructive. Yeah. Okay. And this kind of is not destructive. Okay. It's not a, it's not a destructive joy. It's just joy in life. It's, yeah. it's not mm-hmm. a, it's not a joy in unveiling the reality of the, the dark reality of things that we don't want to see, which I think is mm-hmm. a lot of what irony. But England is a, you know, a, a foggy, drizzly, rainy, cold, wet place. Right? Speaking from someone who wants to defend Wuthering Heights. Yeah. Well, well, I do. That's right. So in, other words, so in other words, joy is also um, a means of self-defense. Uh, mm-hmm. you know. mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is a, it is a dark, dreary place. But, but in this, I've just, I've noticed this more and more about the English is they have this, this um, fundamental joy in things and i don't know mm. how it came out of the environment there but it oh did mm. kind of embodied by like pg woodhouse and oh yeah you see yeah pg woodhouse yeah. yeah it's it's a uh, um but yeah so 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 that's all over dickens and i think my i have a hard time choosing my favorite i uh, like ian but I, I think maybe it's hard times which mm. which i think is Relevant to us also because I think it's one of the great books on education. Mm. Uh, it shows you what happens, what modern education will do mm-hmm. to, to people. Mm. 
Um, and, and so hard times. And also my wife's favorite is uh, Dombey and Son. I think Dombey and Son is very good, but I still haven't read, you know, there's still a few I haven't read. Martin yeah, Chuckle I haven't read uh, Dombey and Son. I got shop. that for Christmas. Oh, and I still is, haven't gotten into it. It's, it's fabulous. It's just fabulous. And Bleak House, yeah. of course, oh, is beautiful. just wonderful. Yeah. So hopefully this conversation a little bit from, you know, Kyle and I, we have kind of English teacher sensibilities and then Martin and Ian are just voracious readers of novels. Hopefully it's given some perspective on why the British tradition can be a really fruitful thing to read even now and our education is equipping students to get there. Last question. If you were stranded on an island <laughs> with a person who you had to force to read one British literature, one title mm. in British literature, What's your recommendation mm. and why? <laughs> See what I did there? I, I switched the scenario right at the end just to make it different. Mm. Ian? No, don't ask me yet. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. Come back to me. Kyle? I, do we can be Shakespeare? Of course. I feel like Shakespeare somehow ruled out of that question. Well, I guess because it's just... Novels, it's, it's, or no, yeah. any work. Any work. Any work, any yeah. work. Well, now I have to choose a Shakespeare's play. That's right. Yeah. Which one? Yeah. Well, if we're on an island, The Tempest. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, right. Uh, oh. That's a topical choice. Why? Mm -hmm. why? Why Shakespeare? Why Why The Tempest? If you, if you had to choose one. I don't know. This goes back to uh, the Shakespeare plays that elude me. There is just, there is something going on. This is why I asked about irony. I'm just interested in this, this English joy. There's something about The Tempest that feels so certain. Uh about magic, about miracles, about the goodness of the world. Um, and it's not a blindness to suffering. You know, Shakespeare knows better than most how humans suffer and what humans suffer. Um, but it just, the, the play, I, I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but the play feels so certain that, that you know, goodness triumphs, that, that mm -hmm. magic is true. Miracles are true. Um, it's just, there's something about it. It's 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 magical. Yeah, I think anybody who hasn't tried to spend time with a few Shakespeare plays, read them, watch a performance of them, read it again, mm -hmm. is missing out on an opportunity that can be really enriching. So yeah. I, I, I'll double down on that. Um, the one book that I would I would want to have with me on that is the complete works of William Shakespeare. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and interestingly, that is the book. Uh, which Aldous Huxley picks as the book that John the Savage finds in his mother's chest uh, on the reservation. She's, she's had a child, which is illegal in the brave new world. And, and, uh, and he grows up and he finds the, the complete works of William Shakespeare in his mother's chest and he starts reading it and it allows him to see and to understand because his, for one thing, just his vocabulary has has now grown so that it 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 has it has words to the thoughts that he didn't know he had mm. because he has the words now to access them, mm. and this is why he becomes who he is in the book. And I think that Huxley picked that particular work very intentionally. You know, I'll buy you a little time. I I would recommend anybody who wants to go back in English literature to go back and read a book called On Poesy by Philip Sidney. I've, I've maybe talked about this before, but my English teacher in college chose this book to teach it to his sophomores every year because it had this, it has this idea. There've been a lot of on defensive poetry books over the years. Um, Percy Shelley wrote one later. 
Um, and it's just a tradition. But Philip Sidney's is making the argument that imagine his word poetry there just means fiction. It's imaginative literature. And he holds up and says, we could teach truth and inspire our youths with a couple of different methods. Um, we could use history, we could use philosophy, or we could use fiction. Hmm. The problem with history is that history only tells us what happened. We don't necessarily know whether it was good or bad. And so history really only teaches us what, what happened and doesn't offer moral guidance. Philosophy can maybe tell us what's right, but that's all it does. It shows us what's right. Fiction gives us characters that we love and that we fall in love with and we see them do the right thing. And then our affections are compelled by those characters to do the right thing. So more than history or philosophy, literature and especially fiction gives us examples of people that capture our hearts in doing the right thing. And it is the, that's why it's the best teacher of truth and reading Philip Sidney make that argument, you know, in the, I think the 15th century um, was really compelling for me and a reason why I love literature uh, fiction to this day. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, I'm just going to pick The Lord of the Rings, a mm. single volume. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys for this conversation. I've enjoyed it. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Classical Etc. If you'd like to show your support for the show, then you can leave a like below. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation, then you can comment. And if you want to follow along with us on this journey, then please subscribe. Thanks, and I'll see you later.